Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. We continue our studies uh, there beginning in verse 19. Again, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 20. Uh, we'll be reading verses 19 through 26 in uh, just a moment. Uh, it's really uh, wonderful today uh, to see uh, one of our longtime members uh, back in attendance, uh, most of you, many of you uh, know Robert Gandy, and after such a very long season in which uh, he experienced such great personal uh, suffering and eventually loss of his dear wife Faye, he is with us today. I think every conversation I've had with Robert over these last few years, he made the point of telling me how much he mentioned, missed gathering with the people of God, and so uh, he is uh, living proof of God's faithfulness and uh, how he was strengthened uh, to serve the Lord during those difficult days. And so it's good to have you back along with Rusty. Uh, also, I'm blessed and privileged this morning to have one of my best friends here uh, with us today, uh, Reverend uh, Mark Smith and his wife Rodna. Uh, he is uh, out of his pulpit today on vacation and he chose to spend it uh, with us, so uh, be sure to make them feel welcome. I tried to get him to attend our new members class this morning during the Sunday school hour, but he declined uh, that invitation, and so, uh, but it remains open to you, brother. All right. Luke chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 19 in just a moment. We began on Easter with Luke's presentation of what we call the triumphal entry I made the case that in in essence it really wasn't triumphal it was certainly an announcement that the king had arrived but it was foreshadowing uh, the ultimate rejection of our Lord by not only the leadership of Jerusalem but its citizenship and so uh, we began last week uh, to look at Jesus as he continued through what we call Holy Week or the, the week of His Passion. He uh, went into the, the temple and, and very publicly uh, began or continued really uh, to teach and preach the truth. He answered the questions that He was asked. He, he dealt with uh, the contemporary uh, controversies uh, of that day. And Luke presents this episode as the other episodes uh, that unfold in his narrative for the purpose of showing us that our Lord Jesus Christ willingly went according to the set purpose and the foreknowledge of God and that through the, uh, the willing alliances and agencies and participation of, of these evil men, they placed... Uh, the innocent Son of God on the cross for our salvation. And that far from being a victim of uh, the evil of these men or the circumstances that he found himself in when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was self-consciously and on his timetable pursuing the end that had been ordained for him before all time had begun. And so let's look at part two today of this ongoing uh, consternation and controversy that occurred there 
uh, within the temple. Uh, read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Pray with me, if you will, this morning. Father, once again, we thank you for uh, your truth, uh, for this testimony uh, to your gospel, uh, for the, re the reality of who you are and what you have done for us. I pray that I would be able to speak your truth today. Uh, that those gathered here would hear your truth and that your spirit uh, would apply these things uh, to our lives. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Immediately in verse 19, Luke refers back to that previous episode, that which we looked at last week, that the religious leaders there in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, they got it. They understood the parable that he had just told them. They understood that he was once again uh, indicting them. Notice there in verse 19 that we're, we're told that uh, the scribes and the chief priest. It's interesting uh, kind of how the, the various gospel writers handle uh, the overlapping accounts because uh, the, uh, uh, Matthew tells us that also gathered there on that occasion were the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, this was a diverse group. This, this was a group that could not get along among themselves. They had uh, both political and theological uh, disagreements uh, that fractured any sense of unity that they might have had. Uh, the one thing that they held in common was the agreed upon objective that Jesus Christ must be eliminated. He must be destroyed. They, they adopted uh, the, the mantra long before it became a popular thing that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they knew that each other was an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is what would unite them and bring them uh, together uh, for the sake of carrying out what I uh, say is their diabolical scheme. Uh, to be sure at one level uh, their scheme, their agenda, uh, their motivation was absolutely straight from the pit of hell and it smelled like smoke. And yet at the same time, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was the plan uh, that God 
had ordained before all ages had begun. This was the, the mechanism, this was the means through which His Son would be sacrificed for our sins, that the, the gospel uh, would be accomplished. And so we see there also in uh, verse 19 that they uh, perceived that this parable had been uh, told as an indictment against them. Now, you can go all the way back probably to each of the gospel accounts, but certainly in Luke's account, and you can see that uh, the animosity that the various religious leaders had for Jesus began early. Uh, that is, that, that as soon as he uh, appeared publicly and began to uh, preach uh, his message of repentance, the nearness of the kingdom, the reality of the, the, the necessity of being born again, all of these things that were at the, the core of what he uh, preached, he faced the pushback, he uh, uh, faced the opposition of the uh, religious leaders. We're told in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, there is an, an account of Jesus dining with a Pharisee, going to the Pharisee's house. And there he's, he, they, they're questioning him about uh, his washing of hands before the eating, of, of engaging in what might be called a, a ritual washing before uh, a meal. And he very quickly indicts them that, hey, you, you cleanse the outside of the, the dish, but, but you don't pay attention. You don't cleanse the inside of the dish. And then he goes on and indicts them with a, a series of, of woes that evidently was a fairly often repeated kind of thing with Jesus between him and these religious leaders. We find in Matthew 23 what uh, traditionally is uh, listed as seven woes, seven ways that this, these religious leaders had taken the revelation of God that was entrusted to them so that, that people might be saved and twisted and perverted it so that the, the truth about God and the truth about salvation was hidden. It, it could not be found. In fact, he went so far as to say, listen, if you do make a proselyte of an individual, you have made them twice as much of son of hell as they were previously. And so, this is another episode. The, the tensions and the animosity is escalating. Of course, if you'll remember, uh, just before his entry, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, you would think that that, that kind of miracle would convince, convince any skeptic as to the truthfulness of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, John tells us, they looked at each other and said, we've got to kill this guy. We, we have absolutely got to get rid, of, get rid of him because it is going to be a problem. And so, they, they say that they understood that Jesus had told this parable about the, the vineyard and their wickedness, or the, the, the tenants of the vineyard and, and their wickedness and what uh, the vineyard owner should rightly do to those wicked tenants. And we're told there that they perceived that he had told this particular uh, parable uh, against them, but they didn't think they could move to carry out their, their scheme because the problem was that he was still held in esteem by the people gathered around listening to them. Now, it's hard from the gospel, from the gospel accounts. I, I don't know if this was a, a very, very large group and, and, and Jesus really had captivated the attention of many or if it was a fairly small group. It's, it's hard to know exactly what the group uh, uh, consisted of. But 
there were enough people there that these religious leaders did not want these people uh, acting out against them uh, for their uh, oppression, for their opposition uh, to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I've told you probably in both sermons leading up to this, the problem was the, this crowd, these listeners, were incredibly fickle. Uh, that, that they had a particular agenda in mind that their Messiah must accomplish. And when it became clear to them that this Messiah, the true Messiah, the promised Messiah, was not going to do that which they expected and, yes, even demanded, then they had no more use for him. Those that were crying, Hosanna. Those that maybe sat under the teaching of our Lord and said, Yes, Lord, would be the crowd that would be yelling at the end of the week, Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And so we see in verse 20, their diabolical scheme is going to follow a particular procedure. It says that they're going to watch him. They're, they're going to be looking. They're going to try to catch him in something that he says or that he does. They're, they're going to actually send spies. That is, they're going to be watching, and then they're going to be those that are kind of incognito. The, uh, the, the, the word here is egg cathetos. And it's a word that means to, to crouch in a, in a hidden position, to, 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 li to lie in wait, to, to, uh, in, in, by extension, kind of the idea is uh, awaiting uh, the opportunity to ambush someone. And so these, these spies have, have entered into the meeting so that they may prompt Jesus to say something that they might use, or they might just accidentally hear Jesus say something that they could bring to the religious leaders that they could use as evidence against uh, the Lord Jesus. Notice that, that we're told that these spies pretended to be sincere. And our, our word uh, there for sincere is hypocrinomai. Hypocrinomai is where, where we get the word hypocrite. It carries the concept of being two-faced, deceitful. Duplicious. And so uh, they were playing the role, so to, so to speak. They had the mask in front of them of being interested in the things that Jesus was saying and doing, but in fact they were insincere. And so their purpose was to trap him, to uh, in, ensnare him, to, to ambush him, to, to seize him for the purpose of turning him over to the authorities, uh, the, uh, certainly the, both religious and political. Uh, as his uh, trial would begin, it begins with these religious leaders who very quickly uh, hand him over to uh, the political leaders because they think they have something to utilize against him uh, to bring about his condemnation. And so you can see uh, that they have got a, a, a well-planned out scheme to place him into uh, the uh, the care into the to the realm of authority of the political leaders uh, there at uh, Jerusalem, and so we see the second thing is their deceitful question, just displaying even the hypocrisy not only of the spies but of the religious leaders. They ask him, "Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God." I mean. They're just piling up the accolades. They're, they are buttering uh, Jesus up with, with all of these uh, uh, words that are ultimately in 
sincere flattery. And, and there's a sense, and you may have heard this term, to condemn someone by faint praise. Uh, that, that is, yeah, you say nice things, but they deserve a higher degree of commendation. And so, if all you got is, you're really a good teacher, then you don't get who Jesus Christ is. Again, in the world today, in the culture today, it's very popular. Jesus was a great teacher. He was a good man. Folks, that is damning our Lord Jesus Christ with faint praise because Jesus was far more than a teacher or a prophet. He was the Son of God who came into the world to live and die for our salvation. He is the King of kings, and He is uh, the Lord of lords. And so they, they flatter Him, and of course, here's the thing. If, 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 they, if they believed what they said, then, then the obvious question is, well, why don't you sit up and pay attention? If you believe this to be the truth, if you believe that I teach with integrity, that what I say is right, it, it is God's words, then why aren't you paying attention? Why, why, aren't, why aren't you o obeying me? Why are you constantly opposing me? And so, Jesus goes on, and we see there in verse 22, after this kind of buttery introduction, they ask him a contrived question. Now, I, I think everybody's aware. They didn't give two hoots for Jesus' opinion about anything. Okay? They, they didn't care what Jesus thought about taxes. They didn't care what he thought about Caesar. Other than the fact they wanted him to say something that they could take to the political uh, leaders so that they could indict Jesus and bring about his ultimate end. Or else he would say something that would turn the population against him so that they could go ahead and carry out their plan without the objection of the people. And so the question is contrived. Uh, they, they are not interested in we need to know what Jesus says about this subject so that we may uh, be obedient to it. It's far different from the attitude of uh, the believer toward the words of Jesus. That is, we must be, by definition, by virtue of our new birth, we are vitally, we are essentially, we are intrinsically interested in everything that Jesus says because He has ultimate authority. He is our Master. He is the Lord of our lives. And His opinion is the opinion that matters. And at the end of the day, it is the only opinion that matters. It is by His Word you will stand and be judged. Whether it's a matter of taxation or anything else under this earth. And so their question is um, very, very contrived. It is, it is designed to create controversy. It is designed to entrap Jesus. It is contrived to give them uh, evidence to bring uh, before Pilate. Well, in verse 23, we see what I would call the, the discerning answer on the part of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, because John tells us, and of course we see it page after page, Jesus knew all things. Jesus knew uh, the hearts of all men. He, he knew their motivations. He, he would not be, he could not be uh, tricked. He could not be uh, deceived. And, and so we're, we're told here that he perceived their craftiness. 
Again, many times we, uh, either because maybe we know individuals or maybe because we're incredibly discerning, uh, we pick up on little cues that let us know that people are insincere, that they're ingenuine, that they're not uh, about doing that which is good or right, and we figure those things out. But Jesus knew with perfect insight because he's the Son of God. He knows all things. He is the second person in the Trinity. That, that he knew their, their treachery. He knew that they were snakes in the grass. And in fact, the, the word kind of is, is kind of akin to that concept. And so they ask him the question, and they know that if Jesus answers in the affirmative, pay, pay your taxes, then the people are going to turn on him that they will no he will no longer be held in popular esteem by the by those there because uh, now I, I I guess I could take a survey today uh, I, I guess I will everybody that really loves taxes loves paying taxes raise your hand please just, just I'd like to see those hands please. I, I mean I I cannot wait to pay taxes okay I won't ask any other questions about that there's never been a citizen that gets all excited about the opportunity to pay taxes, okay? And the Jews of that day were living under this Roman occupation, this Roman regime, this pagan regime that had come and and conquered God's people. If you're supposedly God's people and you're living under a Gentile pagan authority, you might ought to scratch your head just a little bit and think, well, what have we been doing wrong? That, that might be a good place uh, to start for these, these particular uh, Jews. And so he answers their question, is it lawful to pay this? And, and probably it was a, a tax called the, the tribute. It was, it was a particular tax that went directly to Caesar. Didn't really go to the government per se as much as it was a citizenship tax that every person uh, had to pay, and it amounted uh, to a, an annual fee or annual tax of a uh, denarius. And so uh, they, Jesus makes a request there in, tw- in verse 24. Okay, show me a denarius. Show me a particular coin. And that seemed to be, uh, again, the amount of the tax, so I want you to to show me uh, that particular coin, and he asked them a question. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Okay, I've got a question for you. You've been quizzing me. Now I'm going to quiz you, ask you a legitimate question. It's not a hard question, and it's not a, a trick question. Now, one place that I have never seen a commentator or pastor go and just, I'll give you something, you don't do your own study on this, lace your homework, if you want to take some homework home. But in the question about the, the, the image on the, on the coin, the imprint on the coin, and that's the word, Greek word icon, we're created in the icon of Almighty God. That coin belongs to Caesar, and it's stamped with his imprint. I wonder why he didn't go on, and just, just so you know, every human being, ever born under creation is stamped with the very imprint of God. In fact, he has marked himself 
on their heart. And yes, indeed, there, there, there is a legitimate political sphere, a place for government. But before you need to be concerned about the government, you need to be concerned about the one whose imprint you bear. Well, nobody says anything about that, but I did, so you can think about it. Okay? Now, show me the denarius. Who's on it? Their response, they could not escape. He says to Caesar, and this is a very well thought out answer, that is, render to Caesar that which belongs to his realm and to God the things that are God's. Okay? Now, so, he did not in any shape, form, or fashion say absolutely not. It's an abomination. Uh, it's a violation of the first commandment. Uh, it, it, these are pagans. You cannot support pagan regimes. He didn't go down any of those roads. He simply said, you should pay the taxes. There's an appropriate place for this to take place. Well, just a few chapters later, chapter 23, these religious leaders who presumably know something about the Ten Commandments and lying go directly to Pilate and say, we found this man advocating not paying taxes. Now, if, if there's anything that you want to do to run afoul of the government, particularly the Roman government of that day, it's refuse to pay your taxes. And they knew that. But they went, didn't matter that they had the evidence. They, they, were, they were so sneaky, they were so underhanded, they were so devious that they came up with all kinds of false witnesses. Of course, then anytime you get a situation where you are, are getting people to lie and you get multiple people to lie, to lie about something, guess what? All the lies will wind up contradicting each other. And that's what they had. But it didn't matter. Because, again, uh, they, they, they accomplished their, their purpose in getting him before Pilate and getting him indi indicted. Even though Pilate didn't seem to believe him, he still went along with their agenda. And so, what should we say about this? Now, I'm going to say a few things about this issue now. I make, if we have time at the end, I may make some broader uh, application, implication type statements. But the interesting appeal here to the coin, if you utilize the currency of the regime, you have at some level bought into the legitimacy and the authority of that regime. Now let me give you a little silly example. Uh, when I was a kid, I don't even know if it's still around, I think it is, there was a game called Monopoly. And you had Monopoly money, play money. And if you were issued the Monopoly money, that was kind of an agreement that I will play this game by the rules on the inside of the box. Okay, you remember the inside of the box would have the rules by which you play. That, that according to that system, within that realm, that money had value and it indicated that you would play by those rules. And so when you utilize the financial instruments of a regime, there is at least a, a type of agreement that I will abide by the various rules of that regime. And so it's, it's important that Jesus did appeal to the issue of the coin. And so in saying what he said here, the first thing that I would say is Caesar has his realm in which even the believer is to honor and submit and pay our taxes, okay? That realm is limited in scope. 
It is not ultimate. There's only one realm that is ultimate, and that is the realm of the Lord Jesus Christ. It supersedes, it transcends, it overarches, and it undergirds, okay? It will endure. Earthly realms and regimes will not. The classic example seems to me to be found in probably multiple times in the book of Daniel, but certainly with Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when it is decreed that when music begins that you shall bow down to this graven image, his three friends refuse. They are brought before the king. They're quizzed about this, and they're warned that you're going to be burned up. You're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. And they say that... Whatever you choose to do, that is fine. We're good with it. Our God can deliver us from even this fiery furnace, but even if He does not, we cannot submit to that particular decree that you have gone beyond that which is in your realm of authority. You have claimed that, the, that you have claimed in your limited scope that which is ultimate, and that right does not belong to you. And if our God decides that we die for that, then we are willing to die for that. Okay? And so, it is a limited scope. It is delegated. Jesus Himself, by the man that has the power to set Him free or place Him on the cross, He tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Again, in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, Daniel makes this statement regarding God. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Kings and kingdoms come and go. God remains. His realm is eternal. The realm of kings and kingdoms is temporary. Okay? So... Caesar has a realm. It's limited. It's delegated. It's temporary. And it's ultimately subservient. Even an evil one. Sometimes, listen, this one, this truth stretches us all as much as when we see uh, people in the midst of suffering for which we don't see the, the obvious explanation for their suffering, why this individual is sick or why this individual is going through this time of affliction. And we don't have a, like a specific answer. But the writer of Proverbs says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That is, that, that God is in ultimate authority over kings, even the evil of the kings, not making God the author of the evil of the king, but the one who weaves their evil into the tapestry of time and eternity for his ultimate purpose, which is always good, wise, and perfect. And so, four things there. Within this realm, that Caesar, or if you want to just say civil government, or the state, whatever term, they have a realm. Even Christians need to recognize that realm is not ultimate. It is not final. Our allegiance is not uh, unabridged or unconditional. Uh, the scope is, is limited. It is delegated. It is temporary. And it is subservient to the very plan of God. And so we can say in normative conditions, 
and I, I, I've said this many times in the last few years, these last couple of years have challenged me in multiple, multiple areas. They have been difficult. I've been forced to think about things that I really had not thought about uh, before, particularly in this area of the authority and power of the state and uh, the responsibility of the believer. And there's so many uh, things to think about. And I have hashed and I have rehashed and I have probably uh, come to some maybe slightly different conclusions that I may would have had uh, previously. But I would still say, and these are not mine, they're, they're not original to me, these are pretty much borrowed, but the believer should pay our taxes. We should pray for those in authority. We, we should practice obedience to, to, the, to the laws. We should participate. That is, by way of influence. We should speak out. We li still live, for the most part, in free society, and so we seek uh, to influence. Now, Jesus says, again, rightly speaking, the state has a role. Caesar has a role. The government has a role. Government is a gift of God's common grace. It is a necessary uh, thing to, to uh, restrain evil and, and to uh, promote uh, virtue, to even uh, punish evil. Uh, I've, I've said it many times, I am not a libertarian. I don't even trust y'all enough to let you just do anything you want to, okay? Listen, if, if there wasn't a stop sign in, out there, half of you would run the stop sign and run into me, okay? You'd drive up the road at 100 miles an hour and run over me. So I don't trust you. I'm not a libertarian. The government has its place, okay? Now, the problem is evil men trying to regulate the behavior of other evil men. So that's a bit problematic in itself, isn't it? Okay, so we have a problem. God has a realm. Pay your taxes to Caesar, but what else? You need, you need to give what is your obligation to God. What is your obligation to God? Everything. As you're paying your taxes, you pay them unto the Lord, or as unto the Lord. You do it as an act of obedience. You do it as an act of showing uh, the type of God that you serve that 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 God is not threatened by petty men here on earth that his kingdom is far greater his rule and his reign is far greater and so normatively we're to pay these taxes but to be sure God has his realm and that realm is universal and it is not going to be unusual and I keep saying this and I keep coming back to it the trajectory that this culture is on, we're going to see increasing conflict between the church and the state. Okay, I don't know exactly what the issues will be, but I think you're aware at least of some areas that there is going to be great conflict. We cannot yield. We cannot compromise. We're going to have to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to have to say, yes, you have the authority to execute me, but I cannot bow the knee because your rule, your reign is not ultimate. It is temporary. And I serve a God whose rule and reign is permanent. It is eternal. It is wise. It is good. And I must obey Him. So, God has His realm universal. His kingdom is unseen to the unregenerate world. 
I've told you before, Jesus said it. I didn't make it up. The kingdom is here. It is active and it is powerful. And I would even say to you post-millennialists out there, His kingdom is already the greatest among all the kingdoms of the earth. It always has been and it always will be. Okay? And so, His kingdom though, if you're not born again, you just don't get it. You don't get the message. You don't, you don't see the wisdom. You don't see the validity of it. You, 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 you look at things uh, in, a, in a way that you can't fathom that there's something beyond the things of this world. It is unending. It is permanent. Kingdoms of the world, they're going to come and go. Kings and kingdoms, they rise and they fall, just like the seasons. And it is, this kingdom, God's kingdom, is ultimate. And it's to that king and to that kingdom we owe our ultimate, our unyielding allegiance. Even if it does bring us into conflict with the civil magistrates. Okay, that being said, verse 26, the disappointing results. Jesus did not step into the trap. Jesus did not trip the snare. Jesus did not give them the evidence to take to Pilate. Jesus did not say things that they could throw into the faces of the people and say, this guy, this king, this Messiah, the one that you placed your hopes in, he is going to be a colossal disappointment. He is not going to break the yoke of the Romans. He is not going to lower your taxes. He's not going to pay your student loan debt, whatever the thing, whatever the case may be. And so they were disappointed because Jesus gave them no incriminating statements, no evidence that they could use against him. And Luke tells us they, they, were, they were confounded, they, were, they marveled. And even to the unregenerate mind, sometimes the truth is still astounding, still compelling, still like, what? I, there's something there, I can't, I can't quite get what they're saying but I know something's there and it, 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 it's even beginning to, to scratch a place that I really itch but I, but I can't quite get my mind and my heart around it because Jesus spoke the truth and so what's the purpose of the text well it's not to give us a systematic statement regarding governments and politics it does say something to us and it's true and it's applicable and we should pay attention to it but again it's a part of the testimony it's a part of the story through which God would place his son on the cross it's a part and parcel it is it is a step towards the accomplishment of the gospel let me let me just kind of in, in closing you, you can think about these you can see if they've resonate with you where we're headed in this culture goes beyond government and it goes beyond politics okay we can't even agree over reality a source of reality what is truth our senate has just approved an appointee for the supreme court of the united states that is supposed to discern that which is real, that which is true. She was appointed 
because the president said, I'm going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. And then when this very woman, who I assume thinks that she is a black woman, I'm assuming that's what she thinks, but when a senator from Tennessee says, can you define the word woman? And she says, no, I can't, I'm not a biologist. Well, wait a minute, why do you need to be a biologist? Your crowd, your progressives, they've been shouting for years and years and years, anatomy and biology does not matter. Why would you need to be a biologist to define what a woman is? If you can't define what a woman is, how can you define what the law says and what the law doesn't say? We've got a major problem. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. My point is, government needs to reflect transcendent truths, okay? Not only does the government that governs least govern best, the government which most closely reflects the truth and the values found from Genesis to Revelation, most simplified and most summarized in the Ten Commandments, that is the government that will rule best, that is the government that will provide for the most human flourishing, and when that government chooses to turn and walk away from that, that society that, that is the product of that, uh, of that government, or the, the government's a product of that society, is doomed to fail, to collapse upon itself. Because it's irrational, it's logically inconsistent, and it will not work. We have a, such a major problem, we can't agree on reality, truth. We can't agree. We can't agree on what words mean. And so, we're a society that increasingly reflects the description of Romans one twenty eight of a decadent society that has absolutely chosen to rebel against the created order. It is now in this society not only virtuous to demand that there be a right to kill babies, it is a virtue to actually kill them in the name of all types of autonomy and liberty. It is a virtue to deny the realities of biology and anatomy. It's a virtue to destroy the property of others in the name of justice. And on and on we could go. We can't des describe, we can't define, we can't agree on what, that, what is good and what is ultimately destructive. And here's the thing, and, and I, I heard this this week, and it really made sense with me. We're not autonomous. We are created beings. And no matter how much we try to distort the truth, and no matter how much we try to pervert the truth, and no matter how much we try to bury the truth between, under all of the junk of this society, there is something within our heart and mind, the heart and mind of every individual, that says this is truth and this is wrong. This is a lie. And we, the, the, we, the, the more we know that we're lying about what is true and what is right, the, yell, the louder we're going to yell, the more violent we're going to become, the more we're going to lash out against those that speak out against your definition of truth. We'll get louder, shriller, more vicious, and more violent. And that's where the culture is going. And here's the thing, at the end of the day, I don't think the Bible's really a political book. It's a true book. It's a truth book. It's a book about... A savior, that's his primary purpose. But be sure of this, be sure you know this. 
the statement Jesus is Lord is a political statement. Okay? Now, it's more than a political statement, I, I assure you. But when the state and the culture claims that that which they want to affirm is the ultimate, then we're going to be captive of our conscience and our confession. That no, the state is not ultimate. And Caesar is not Lord. There's only one Lord. And His name is Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word for the testimony to your work, for your pursuit of the time in which you would indeed not have your life taken from you, but the time in which you would lay down that life willingly only to take it up again for our salvation. We thank you for the power of your word, for its witness in our lives. I pray for wisdom and discernment for our days ahead. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.